0: Under the Tartan Sky, episode 13, produced 9 September, 2015. Scotland. Its population is just over 5 million, yet its influence has been felt around the world thanks in large part to the role of the Scottish diaspora, migrants who left Scotland for other parts of the globe. Today, that diaspora community is estimated to number as many as 30, 50, or even 100 million, especially when including those who claim a sense of being Scottish, even if through ancestry dating back several generations, or perhaps just in having an affinity for Scotland and all things Scottish. When we return, the who, what, when, where, and why of the Scott diaspora under the Tartan sky. Here in Scotland, 2015 is the Year of Food and Drink, a celebration of the country's outstanding natural larder and produce. From artisan cheeses and world-renowned whiskies, to succulent seasonal berries and Arbroath Smokies, there's an abundance of delicious regional flavours round every corner. Discover the landscapes, people and culture that make our food heritage so unique and enjoy a feast of events and festivals throughout the year Come and experience a true taste of Scotland. Few knowledgeable persons would argue that the Scots have had an amazing impact around the world. It's been suggested, only half-jokingly, that Scots invented the essence of the modern-day world. Thomas Edison and the light bulb, Samuel Morris and the telegraph, Alexander Graham Bell and the telephone, and there's the television, and the list goes on and on. Certainly, the Scots have had an incredible impact here in the USA. Three quarters of U.S. presidents from George Washington onward were of Scottish descent. The U.S. Declaration of Independence was fashioned after the Declaration of Arbroath, signed in 1320. More than half of the signers of the Declaration were Scottish or of Scottish descent and nine governors of the original 13 colonies were Scots. My own home state of Texas might never have existed were it not for heroes like Sam Houston, Jim Bowie, and Davy Crockett, all of whom were Scots. A century and a half later, Neil Armstrong, some may not know this, carried the Armstrong tartan with him when he made those first historic footprints on the moon. But just who are the Scott diaspora here in the USA and elsewhere around the world? My guest here, Under the Tartan Sky, is Dr. Tanya Bultman, expert in diaspora and migration history, principal lecturer in history, and director of international development and recruitment, Department of Humanities, for Northumbria University in Newcastle. She is the author of Clubbing Together, Ethnicity, Civility, and Formal Sociability in the Scottish Diaspora to 1930, The Scottish Diaspora, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2013, and her 2011 book, Scottish Ethnicity and the Making of the New Zealand Society, 1850-1930, to was shortlisted for the Saltire Society History Book of the Year and Scottish Research Book of the Year Awards. She also writes on the subject regularly in her Scottish Diaspora blog, found online at thescottishdiaspora.co.uk. To begin this most academic of all these podcasts so far, I asked Dr. Bultman to share a bit more about herself and her interest in the Scottish diaspora.
1: Well, I'm German and I studied history there and uh, somehow I ended up in Edinburgh for a little while and I got very interested in Scottish history. Um, You know, I thought when I go to Edinburgh, I should be studying Scottish history. Um, And when I was thinking about doing a PhD, I thought about possible topics and I was very keen on doing something on the Scots and then I thought it would be even more exciting to do something on the Scots abroad. And that's how I ended up in New Zealand doing my PhD on the Scots in New Zealand, which kind of kick-started my whole interest in um, the Scottish diaspora and Scots abroad and the kinds of things they do um, after arrival, which is particularly what I'm looking at instead of you know just numbers, um, which is very important. Don't get me wrong, but I'm kind of more interested a little bit in the cultural side of things and what migrants did after they'd arrived.
0: Let's start with a discussion of just exactly who are the Scott diaspora, because there are many definitions that are applied to the group, and you perhaps know how to define them better. The Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford said, for example, that only about 200,000 Scots-born people live outside of the UK, while 850,000 live elsewhere in the UK. But if you expand the definition from Scots born to those that are more distant, those of Scottish ancestry, then indeed the Scott diaspora are in some cases, like myself, many generations removed. But if you look at it in that sense, we're talking numbers of 30, 40, 50 million worldwide. So in your interpretation, who are the Scott diaspora?
1: I think it's worth looking just actually at the term diaspora for a minute, sort of irrespective of the Scots in a sense. Many people use that term really meaning just the same as migrant. I think that's wrong and quite misleading. To me, diaspora means much more than that. It means a continued affinity to a homeland. This homeland doesn't have to be real necessarily. You can have groups as well who have a sort of imagined um, homeland. That's in the more traditional definition, for example, of the sort of Jewish case or the Armenian case, things like that. But in the Scottish case, obviously there is there is a homeland. But that is the kind of people you were talking about then who have a much more long standing affinity. Um it also means connections between groups around the world. So Scots are quite aware that there are other Scots elsewhere, that they are connected through common traditions and common culture, even if they've never met each other. In history, a few um, decades ago, there was a concept developed that was called imagined communities. That's kind of communities where people um, don't know everyone who's in it, but they know the, of the existence of that group. And that sort of plays a role in the diaspora as well. So it isn't just about migration. So it isn't just about these kind of plain... Well, relatively plain anyway, numbers of people having moved from A to b it 's about the connections to a place, which means you could even have someone who might call himself maybe like I might an affinity Scot, someone who actually has no real connection in a sense with Scotland that 's based on on genes if if you want to call it that, but really rather on that affinity to the country so it 's quite complex in many ways, but I think it 's important in a diaspora to recognize that there are these other factors that make a diaspora. And therefore, as you rightly say, you'll have a much larger group of people who are part of that potentially than, you know, just in inverted commas, just those people who actually migrated at some
0: stage. Why does identifying oneself as Scottish seem to have such an appeal to people in far-flung locations and often those who are, as you say, perhaps either generations removed like myself or even the affinity Scots that you're talking about. Why is it that that's important to us?
1: Well, I mean, I'm sure there are lots of individual reasons, but having looked at different types of traditions that people felt this sort of appeal to, I think it's something in Scottish traditions that is quite has quite a sort of global reach. If you look, for example, at uh, Highland Games, they were a key, well, pull factor for a lot of people from lots of backgrounds. And while they were very Scottish at the same time, they always had this wider appeal because they kind of were sporting events, they kind of were activities where people could come with families. Other immigrant groups don't necessarily have that kind of thing to offer. For example, if you compare the English here with the Scots, they just don't have that kind of thing. So it's much harder for them to have a broader global appeal. Burns might be another example for this. Burns was sort of a global poet, someone that lots of people could relate to. So again, it opened up a lot of activities of the Scots. And undoubtedly, the fun element plays a part in this as well. Particularly, I think nowadays, some studies, for example, a colleague of mine in the south of the US working on uh, current communities of Scots there has shown that you know this sort of element of being able to go with the family to dancing events or to Highland Games and things like that. It's just a fun thing to do. And again, the Scots in a way were able, or their descendants, able to sort of utilize this Scottish thing to make it more broadly appealing and therefore pulling in people and getting them interested into these activities.
0: Before we get into some of the cultural uh, discussion, which we will get into, but When I think of the Scottish diaspora, I think of people in faraway lands, far removed from Scotland, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, as you have some expertise in. You wrote in one of your blogs, though, about Scotland's near diaspora. Who are the near diaspora and how do they differ or do they differ from the rest of the diaspora community?
1: well what i was interested in really is looking at the global tradition of, of scottish clubs and societies and scots set them up everywhere and i was wondering if there might be a difference between places that are closer to scotland which i thought you know the term near diaspora was a good term to use some other people have used this in different contexts so that would be you know england maybe ireland as well fairly close continental europe potentially although i didn't really uh, look at that but anyway closer to scotland so whether that would have an impact as opposed to a place like like New Zealand, which you know basically couldn't be much further away. Now, of course, today it's all slightly different because we have things like Facebook and well Skype. We're skyping this uh, interview just now, so that makes a difference. But in the 19th century, say you know this proximity did that affect how people came together as Scots, or did it not make a particular difference? And generally, I found that it it didn't. Um, not in terms of Scottish clubs and societies, anyway. They were set up in very much the same way. Everywhere around the world, but undoubtedly it had a big impact in terms of how often people might see their relatives um, or might travel back to Scotland in what I call the near diaspora. You might be able to do that fairly frequently. I mean, imagine you lived in Belfast and your family was in Glasgow, even if you didn't earn that much money. there was a you know a reasonable potential for you to go back once in a while if you lived in the u s it was perhaps a bit more likely than to do it than if you lived in Australia but of course, very different from this closer proximity. So in many ways, for my interest, it didn't matter this distance because Scots came together as Scots wherever they settled.
0: It's one of the interesting things to me about the Scott diaspora at large. When you look at the the migration from Scotland uh, to uh, the many locations around the world where the Scott diasporas are found, my own ancestry, for example, began with Scottish ancestors who then, uh, moved to and were part of the Ulster plantation and then eventually my direct ancestor Alexander Breckenridge migrated from the Ulster plantation into the United States. And yet most of those Scots were lowlanders and yet there is this huge desire or movement almost in some cases you feel a requirement that if you say to someone oh I'm Scottish or, or I'm a Scott diaspora I have Scott ancestry Their first question is, what clan are you associated with? And we all go through these machinations to find where our ancestry is and how and what clan we're associated with and what tartan we can wear. And in fact, the clans were Highland Scots. And so many of the uh, migrant Scots, particularly through the Ulster Plantation and beyond, were Lowland Scots. So is this clan affiliation thing something that the Scot diaspora value more than others? What's the reasoning, do you think? Why is that so important to us to find and and attach ourselves to a clan when our ancestry may have come from lowland Scots who had no clan affiliation? Uh,
1: Lots of interesting questions there, Glenn, I think. Um, First of all, it's important to say the context definitely is that the majority of migrants in most situations were lowlanders. So you're very right to say that actually it's a bit funny that then people should claim perhaps this Highland-oriented sort of clan culture. I think there was a juncture at some stage, maybe around about 1900, when um, suddenly this clan culture was perceived to be perhaps the most genuine Scottishness, perhaps the truest Scottishness. There aren't necessarily specific reasons for this, but it was, of course, a time when generally there were lots of national kind of movements now in the UK and in Scotland as well. That wasn't at that point particularly strong. There were, however, tendencies for it, but also generally everywhere people were questioning their identity but then also in their local contexts abroad, that might have been the case. I mean, for example, in the US, around about 1900 was the time when immigration restrictions were imposed, not necessarily on people coming from the British Isles, but still, you know, all questions about migration identity were changing. So a lot of people, I think, were looking perhaps more to their roots, were looking for, well, for want of a better term, the truest kind of identifier. And Clan culture was perceived in that way. In many organizations, that's just another sign of it. For example, a lot of them changed um, their titles. So in New Zealand, for instance, most Caledonian societies had presidents, and they always had presidents since their inception. And suddenly they all had clan chiefs or chiefs, many of them anyway. So you see this is really quite a global kind of phenomenon round about that time that a lot of organizations that were new also instituted these titles um and again i think it's just purely because it was perceived to be the most scottish thing you could do now within the context of north america um i think generally this this was kind of bigger than in elsewhere and certainly today i think it's bigger than in many other places and it might just have to do also with the visual culture that ha- that sort of surrounds clans, you know, to be able to say, this is my tartan, to be able to say, you know, this is maybe where the, the castle is, if there is one. All of that, I think, just sort of is, is more fun, but also it's just very visual, is is very visible. And I think people are drawn to that. So these are probably not particularly academic explanations, but I think they are factors in why people choose clans, even if actually... They're not really connected to them
0: in many ways. In the case of my own ancestry, the Breckenridges, the Barn Hills, there is no such clan per se, but the Breckenridges in particular were in fact lowlanders. Uh, I know that they came from the Ayrshire, Lanarkshire area, but at some point they did move slightly north into um, the lower part of the central highlands and all of the uh, genealogic information that I can find uses the term they came under the influence of whatever that may mean of the Campbells of Breadalbane, and then eventually they were part of the uh, migration to the Ulster Plantation and then onward to North America from there. Does that make me any less Scottish? A- am I right or wrong, perhaps, to claim at least some affiliation with the uh, the Campbells of Breadalbane clan? <laughs>
1: I don't know if, you know, from an academic perspective, there might be a narrower definition, but in my view, it it certainly doesn't. I mean, if people want to claim particular identities, I think that's fine. And I have absolutely, you know, I'm kind of claiming various identities in a sense. Given my migration trajectories, if people ask me, you know, who are you? What are you? I always find that a bit difficult to answer in that sense. But there clearly are links in in your, you know, ancestry. And why, why shouldn't you, you know, make those claims? But I think the interesting thing that brings up is also that, of course, in many people's cases there has been a lot of internal movement before the overseas migration so the lot of an, a lot of ancestry lines of people are quite blurred in that sense they may not necessarily um, be direct kind of descendants of highlanders but you know further down the line, people might have very well have come down from the highlands to the lowlands and then maybe gone to Ulster or somewhere else first. So there are lots of different migration pathways um, for people. And again, that makes that whole distinction a lot more complex.
0: Most people, I think, especially those that are Scott Diaspora, are familiar with, of course, the not entirely voluntary migration from scotland into what became the ulster plantation and then beyond is that element in history is that sort of where we say this was the beginning of the scottish migration and indeed the birthplace if you will of the scott diaspora community that is now spread worldwide
1: well, I think there certainly are scholars who've made that point, not necessarily just with the Scots, but more broadly also with, you know, English imperial ventures, where did it all start, did it start in Ireland, that kind of thing. And I think there is a bit of a case to be made for that certain things were perhaps tested a little bit within the context of Ireland. But Scots have been migrating before that. They've been migrating to continental Europe before that, not necessarily in huge numbers. You know, merchants, sailors, and also at some point mercenaries um, were very active uh, in continental Europe in different contexts. So while it's certainly a key watershed i wouldn 't necessarily say it's the first case of that sort of outward movement, but it makes or what what makes it important is certainly that it was significant numbers, but then also the connections that were maintained with the homeland perhaps are an important factor to remember here
0: when we talk about the Scott diaspora, I know there's a huge community in North America, the United States and Canada. You had done a tremendous amount of research on the diaspora and the uh, migration of Scots around the world. Where else in the world do we see a large concentration of Scott diaspora? What other parts of the world is that true in?
1: Um, in, in many, really, but New Zealand would stand out for me because if you look at the population ratios, New Zealand is the most Scottish. Really? If you compare how many Scots there lived in Scotland at the time and how many English, for example, lived in England at the time, that would have been a ratio of 12% Scots to uh, or the majority of the remainder being English, well, a few Welsh, of course, as well. Um, but anyway, around about 12% Scots um, it, around, you know, 1860s, 1880s, that time. Um, in New Zealand, at the same time, in terms of the migrants who c- were coming from the British Isles, it was nearly 25%. So they were overrepresented in terms of their population share at home uh, in New Zealand as part of the British migrants. So they, you know, that, that makes New Zealand stand out for me. Um, but of course, there are other places that are very Scottish. It also sometimes is smaller communities in a particular place. Uh, You know, certain parts of Canada are very, very Scottish, certain parts of Australia are very, very Scottish. But in terms of overall numbers, certainly New Zealand stands out, I
0: think. And what are some of the factors that led to the larger percentage of Scots within the migrant community?
1: Well, generally, the Scots have always, as certain contemporary newspapers said, you know, uh, felt that kind of pull of a of, wanderlust. Of perhaps there were, may there were factors in the nineteenth century in Scotland that a lot of uh, families were growing in size, which was problematic in the sense that. Uh, if you had land and then you were thinking about uh, how you would split that between your children, that might not go down particularly well for the uh, last born. So people were looking to overseas for opportunities, some of them. Uh, there were kinship pool factors. I mean, some of the places where a lot of Scots were kind of locally concentrated were perhaps group migrations uh, or, you know, the migrations at least of a larger number of people uh, kind of together more or less. That was important um, factors. In the locations overseas, coming back to New Zealand, for example, that was. Uh, particularly Scottish initially in the South Island because there was a settlement set up as a free church settlement so after the disruption of the church in Scotland the free church was set up and they were looking also to kind of go overseas perhaps and sort of spread the seed in a sense which was obviously quite common in the 19th century but they set up a settlement in the South Island which was called Dunedin and Dunedin is the Gaelic word for Edinburgh and if you looked at the street map you would find a Princess Street and various other streets that are very similarly laid out to Edinburgh, um, so that brought lots of Scots there. So it's it's a number of factors coming together uh, in these areas where they were particularly concentrated.
0: Now, in your research, one of the things that you've identified as common amongst all the diaspora community, no matter where they may have eventually located, is this idea of that you call clubbing together. And for example, again, I refer to myself. I am the I'm currently the vice president of our Scottish Society of the Louisiana Highlands, which is a bit of a joke since the whole state's only 300 feet above sea level. (laughs) We don't have much in the way of highlands, but it is our local Scottish society. Um, And there are, as we've talked about, there are Scottish societies and organizations around the world. Is that a unique trend to the Scott diaspora that when they migrated to far parts of the world, I guess in a way it makes sense that you would try to seek out others of common interest But is this clubbing together something that is a unique factor or a unique trend of the Scottish diaspora when they've migrated and relocated in other parts of the world?
1: No, um, I must be quite clear that it definitely isn't unique in any way to the Scots, um, exactly for the reason you just said, you know, it makes sense to do this. Pretty much every migrant group um, did this. However, and this is really important, what makes the Scottish case stand out, I think, is that it was often the Scots who were the first to do this. They established, for example, the first such kind of uh, ethnic-based social group uh, in the United States, the Scots Charitable Society of Boston. There uh, slightly different timings for it, and it went into a bit of a uh, kind of a mute phase for a while. But generally, it was mid to late um, 17th century that that was founded or was active for the first time. So that that was the starting point. But then also a little later on, when other groups started doing this, the Scots were again the first. Charleston in South Carolina was a principal place where organizations were set up very early on, St. Andrew's Society there was the first set up in the States. And you find that similarly around the world. Um, The other thing which makes the Scottish case not necessarily special, but quite specific in how it worked for the Scots was... Kind of what I said before, that the Scots were able to use a lot of their Scottish traditions, but make them appeal to a much wider public. So while they were Scottish in many ways, and why obviously Scots would have found them perhaps quite lovely for that reason alone, they often had this wider community appeal. So for example, in New Zealand particularly, but also to a large extent in the U.S., Highland Games were, in the mid to late 19th century, fundamental for shaping uh, and developing, actually, sporting culture. You know, organised kind of sports uh, in the absence of sporting clubs initially were filtered very much through these Caledonian groups. So that meant, of course, that quite a number of members and people involved weren't actually Scottish. It was people who were interested in these sporting activities. But again, that actually, I think... Help the Scots keep these organizations going and keep activities going. Groups who didn't have that, who simply relied on ethnic things for their own group, they tended to then start to die away because people weren't looking for these kinds of things anymore. So while the Scottish case, as I say, wasn't unique, wasn't in a sense um, special, these characteristics mark it out as unique in some respects.
0: And I think, as we've talked before, And I want to get into that a little bit more, particularly the organization here in the United States. It was not just a social necessity or a desire to gather and club together socially. There was also a great deal of support provided by the organization to its members and to the the larger Scottish community, wherever they were located. Is that not right?
1: That's right, exactly. In fact, that's kind of the the, the roots of Scottish clubbing together, lie exactly in that. The Scots Charitable Society was set up to support migrants uh, who were in distress, who needed help. Um, There are suggestions that actually it was founded at the time it was founded, in the late 1650s, probably because that was when a lot of the uh, prisoners who had been sent to the US after the Battle of Dunbar, were being released from their indentured servitude and then didn't have any money and didn't have any jobs. But even if that wasn't the case, it isn't entirely clear. There have been suggestions it was, but the evidence is a bit shaky. But even if that wasn't the case, generally speaking, they were set up to support Scots migrants in distress. And in Charleston, when the St. Andrew Society was founded, that was the case. And in all other locations, that was the case. What that meant was that a lot of people who were the leading members in these groups were a little higher up the social ladder, they could dispense charity. They were able to do that. So you wouldn't necessarily find a working class person, a member of a St. Andrew Society. They hosted dinners, they hosted balls, and usually the purpose of those was not just to be good fun for the members, although that was a factor, of course, but also to raise funds for the dispensation then to charitable causes brotherly love and charity is a very common motto that these organizations would kind of use. Um, And they would sometimes use it, or actually, I should probably say quite often, use it for the purpose, a little bit of social engineering. I mean, if someone was a drunk and didn't come across as uh, someone who would make his or turn his life around, they probably wouldn't support that person. So they were looking at people who were the sort of, in a sense, right kind of migrants to support. So women and orphans were certainly high on the list. They might receive different type of support from someone who was considered to be able to work. So that person might also just be advised on where to find work, how to go about that. So all these activities, they were geared towards ideally enabling the person to lead a better life themselves. Um, So this was up until the kind of mid-19th century that these societies were very big. In the late 19th century, a second tier developed that was much more working class. And that was what we would call a mutualist society where you would join up um, as a working class laborer and would pay in. And then if you fell ill, it would pay out a kind of insurance. So basically, it was an insurance provider. But for example, the Sons of Scotland, they were very big in Canada and they still exist, actually. And they uh, provided this. And this was, as I say, much more working class because people were able to afford this. It wasn't about dispensing charity. It was about making your own kind of charity for yourself, in a sense.
0: It almost sounds as if what was going on in those groups at that time are the early formations or or the early uh, founding bricks, if you will, of what has become essentially almost a workers' union. Is that where some of this outgrowth came from?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people were also involved in trade unions that were beginning to emerge. Um, Certainly, it was also a time where some of these provisions weren't there yet. So using your ethnic group was in a way an approach to try and um, address that issue. The state wasn't providing services that it might provide today. Now, for the Scottish case, because they were English-speaking generally anyway, of course, there were some people who might have only spoken Gaelic, um, but generally speaking English, this was actually less of a connection with trade unions. But just to give you another example, Germans, they actually had specific trade union organizations for Germans, and language was the factor there, obviously. They were gathering together primarily in these groups also because their language was a different one. So you see that depending on how well you might integrate, there are different layers of organizations that people um, put in place. But, you, I mean, you're you're not wrong to suggest that there are some overlaps in terms of aims with, with trade unions. And the, certainly the idea of just organizing and joining together clearly underpinned all of these activities. Uh, you know, strength in numbers, st- strength through organization.
0: In terms of overall contributions, the Scots obviously are not the only migratory population in the world. But where do the Scots rank in terms of their contributions as a migratory society and what they've brought to what we now call a global enterprise or our global society today?
1: I mean, I think there are quite a few celebratory accounts that suggest, you know, the Scots invented the modern world kind of thing and spread that sort of Scottish Thinking around the world, um, I don't want to overstretch the case. I would also want to say very clearly that I haven't, you know, established this in particularly academic terms, um, but I do think it's fair to say that in many places they contributed disproportionately because they were often in higher positions, especially again if you measure that in comparison to how many Scots there actually were. Um, You know, okay, I said in New Zealand, it made up 25% of the uh, British arrivals, for example. But again, compared to how many Scots there were, generally, this is a very large number. And if then of those people, a lot are actually in leading positions as prime ministers, or in fact, you know, in the US as presidents, for example, quite a few or signatories of the Declaration of Independence, things like that, the ratios tend to be disproportionate. Um, so I suppose it is a fair point to make that they did, because of these roles, because of that kind of position, a good number held in society, make a very important contribution in many places. You know, people also outside of politics, Andrew Carnegie would be a very significant example, but there are others on a smaller scale as well who obviously uh, contributed very significantly. The Scottish education system is often cited as one factor for that. I think people are now slightly revising um how they see this. It has long since been argued that people were kind of disproportionately well educated for the time. Um that isn't necessarily untrue, but other countries also did provide perhaps slightly better systems than was initially thought. But still, there were a lot of very well-educated people. So again, you had a lot of doctors, you had a lot of geographers who were very important uh, in the early settlement of lots of places. So again, I think Scots often tended to be in positions of influence, but also early on in these positions. And that perhaps contributed to them making important contributions.
0: When we look at the Scott diaspora and the Scots as a migratory society, how has that migration changed? through the centuries, and is it continuing today? Certainly, perhaps not in the numbers that it did uh, back in the uh, mid-1800s, 1900. But how has that, that migration changed uh, as you've looked at it through your research?
1: Well, I think, you know, the biggest changes in any migration always are sort of the reasons why people leave, and they've probably changed a little bit in, in some ways. At certain peak times, you would have had what we would call perhaps a push factor, Um, Now, I think this image of forced or exiled Highlanders forced off their land is problematic because the majority of people who left isn't represented in this image of mid-19th century. But of course, there were people for whom that experience was the reason for migrating. Nowadays, the majority probably would be more people who are looking for the sort of opportunities that you might find abroad or who just think it's good fun to live somewhere else for a longer time. You know, generally in the mid-19th century, we call that the age of mass migration. So the Scottish migration was part of a wider migration from a lot of peoples in Europe who were moving to other places. We don't have, well, within the European context, in terms of people moving out of Europe, we don't have that in the same way anymore. Well, nowadays, I mean, it couldn't be more political in the sense that we have refugees, and migrants arriving in Europe now from other places. So it's kind of an interesting time, in a sense, looking at why people were leaving in the mid-19th century and why maybe people are coming to Europe now, some of them perhaps for similar reasons. Um, but yeah, anyway, so I think you know there's a plethora of reasons why people left, and many of them would have been quite individual. But I think the biggest difference is that we don't have this sort of mass migration out of Scotland anymore that we had at some stage in the past.
0: When we look at the community again at large, I talked about, you know, how removed, while it's very important to me, my, my generational links to Scotland are quite far removed, back to the sixteen seventeen hundreds, and as with each new generation, that link grows even longer. Are we seeing, will we see, as we continue to watch the passage of time, a sort of dilution of the Scott diaspora community as those generational links become longer and longer and longer? Are we at risk of losing the sense of community that the Scott diaspora have had, certainly in the 1900s, the time frames when you've done your research and the way it is today, uh, looking forward 50, 100, 200 years from now? Will, will that community, you think, begin to dissolve through this sort of generational dilution?
1: Now, I mean, I can't look into the future, but I I would say a number of things. Now, if you look at the 19th century and how sort of signs of Scottishness have progressed, um, they have generally weakened. I think that's probably fair to say. So, for example, there were hundreds and thousands of Scottish clubs around the world at some point in the late 19th century. That isn't the case anymore. That would be, you know, wrong to say. However, I think many of these kind of Scottish expressions have been perhaps replicated in other ways now that just are a little bit different but still serve the same purpose. Things like groups on Facebook things like kilter or other activities that now exist for social networking to bring Scots together. So I would be actually probably tempted to say that in many ways now a Scottish sense or sense of Scottishness amongst um, people with more removed ancestries might be stronger than it perhaps was, say, in the mid-20th century, when there were uh, very few groups and not many activities. The 1970s saw reinvigoration in a lot of places. Um, Generally speaking, obviously it depends on whether people in one way or another maintain their Scottishness. And I think nowadays, certainly in the U.S., a lot of people have started doing that again. Lots of families are taking their children to things like Highland dancing and to dancing classes to learn it. Um, So long as that continues, I don't think there is a sort of, well, in inverted commas, threat of Scottishness abroad in the diaspora disappearing if people found, however, at some stage that, you know, they weren't actually interested in that kind of thing anymore, then that would be a, a different matter. But in the US in particular, Canada perhaps as well, there seems to be a very strong kind of resurgence of, of this sense of Scottishness in a lot of communities. Um, the number of roots tourists, people who actually travel to Scotland to explore their roads, routes, is quite significant particularly from the U.S., but also from some other places. So, yeah, I mean, I can't, as I say, I can't look into the future, but I would be surprised if it disappeared. I think it's endured, you know, over generations. You need to have people who lead it. That is the key thing. Uh, In all these clubs I've I've examined, in all these activities, the reason clubs fall over usually relates to a lead figure disappearing.
0: I've seen in our own Scottish society, Uh, one of the issues that we face is that most of our members are my age or older. And so we're talking primarily senior citizens. We're looking at people that are 55 and older. But I don't see a tremendous sense of appreciation of Scottishness in young people today. Is that generally true, do you think? And if so, do you have any insight as to why that may be?
1: I think it's generally true, but I don't think it's necessarily specific to today. This has always been the case. There seems to have been cycles um, of sort of organizational life. Um, And even in the 19th century, you know, I could have spoken with uh, Glenn uh, at the time then, and we would have said exactly the same thing. Um, some groups deal with this better than others, though that, that's not a criticism. They just seem to have found a way to to do things differently. I found that a lot of groups who also do sporting activities, and with that I mean specifically rugby or football, they have a lot of younger uh, members. Groups who do the more traditional things tend to be like the ones you've described. So, yeah, that, that is an issue, I think. I think groups need to think about how they can interact with younger people, because obviously, you know, for all I've said before, if there isn't a kind of replenishing, then, you know, the future might actually indeed look quite bleak in terms of uh, these kind of organized um, societies. But again, as I say, this isn't a new thing. This has always been the case. And that generally, to me, means that probably the threats in some ways are not as significant as you might think, because groups have always been able or many anyway, you know, to to work with this and do something about it in the end. A related issue is, of course, today there are so many activities to choose from. I mean, obviously, that's always been the case. But, you know, today you could do anything pretty much. And why on earth would you go to, you know, a Scottish society? There obviously has to be some kind of pull factor. It also does depend, and I think that's the other important thing, on where people are located Imagine you are in, say, Dubai, or you are in Bangkok, or you are in Beijing. These are much more, for want of a better term, alien environments. Language would be an issue with, in terms of communicating with the local population in some of these places, perhaps particularly China, because English language spread is not um, as good there as in some of the other places I mentioned communities generally are smaller the the um what i would call expat communities are smaller so in those places organize, organizations generally are doing very well they might have overall small numbers of members just because there aren't that many scots there
0: perhaps but they're grouping together because of a necessity yeah to, that's just right. to but stay in contact
1: that's right there's more of a of an incentive perhaps to stay together for the sake of staying together Rather than, you know, maybe in the States, well, I have the opportunity to do that, 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 that. Why would I now go to the Scottish society? So the environment in which groups operate is is critical for that as well. And that's another reason why we've seen the development of so many new groups, because now people uh, live all over the world. So suddenly you do find these groups in Dubai and in all these various other places uh, suddenly, with that, I mean a time frame of you know twenty, thirty years. But places anyway, where in the past these groups didn't exist, um, but with people coming there, you know, big uh, companies going there, sending their people there, this has has developed. And not just for the Scots. Again, this is a general uh, general development.
0: And surely, technology must be playing a role in this, because uh, as I mentioned, I'm involved in a number of Facebook groups with literally, in some cases, tens of thousands of members who are either Scots who are living in Scotland, Scott diaspora that are Scottish-born or have ancestral ties, or in many cases I've found they are, as you described, the affinity Scots. And I have friends now in Scotland. I've been to Scotland twice, and I stay connected with them. I have a, a UK mobile phone. So surely technology must be playing a role in some ways in bringing the worldwide Scott diaspora, in a sense, even closer together, creating, if you will, almost a worldwide clubbing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You might remember the term I used before, this imagined community. It's much less imagined now all of a sudden. You know, you might actually get to see someone's face on a Facebook profile page or something like that. So you might actually recognize them if maybe, you know, you went to Scotland and that person happened to be there as well. Uh, and that's not actually unusual. It's happened even to me. So um, it's it's brought this world much closer together. It's also enabled very different activities to take place. It's helped with a lot of activities that have been taking place for a long time. In the past, for example, say it was St. Andrew's Day and the New York Society was celebrating that. Uh, the St. Andrew's Society, they would be sending telegrams to other St. Andrew's societies around the world to dispense greetings. So it would be untrue to say that they were totally unconnected in the 19th century. They were trying to do it in this way. Communication was always critical. But the difference is now that communication is really instantaneous. And it's immediate unless, you know, you have a very big time difference, then that might be um, a different issue. But yeah, that's changed a lot for these groups. You know, they just interact in very different ways. Twitter is a big one as well for uh, many groups, which has changed a lot of the things they do, how they organize events, how they meet up. And even in places where these things are um, more difficult, um, and specifically, I'm thinking here of China, because a lot of these um, communication channels I've just mentioned, they can't be used there because of blocks on the internet. They found their kind of Chinese version of it. There is a thing called WeChat, which is basically a WhatsApp um, for China, and groups use that there, for example, to organize meetings and things like that. So it's had a big, big impact, um, modern technology in that sense.
0: And you're making use of that and bringing that imagined community a little closer together with a project on your own website where Scott Diaspora can log on and share their story. I was one of the early participants in that, I believe. Tell me a little more about that project and how it's progressing and what its purposes and goals are.
1: My idea was really just to uh, enable or, or provide a way for people to share their stories. And there are not, I mean, you were indeed one of the first, and thanks very much again for that. There are not that many stories yet. I think sometimes people are a little bit hesitant when they're meant to be talking about their own family and the idea was that people would also share a photo with it although that could be potentially a photo that's not necessarily them Um, but I think it's nice if it's them Um, but really it's just a few questions that are kind of standard for everyone and my idea was just that basically everyone would sort of say the same kinds of things in a a sense so it's a little structured but I think the questions are very open so they're not restrictive and people can pretty much say as, as little or as much as they would like to share about their personal history if they know anything about their roots and where people came from where they live now Um, so the idea was that uh, basically you can choose on that side also um, the location people are from so you could search in that way for people Yeah, and just to connect people and there's a well what I was thinking was a little bit of a funny element to it, there's one particular picture I'm showing people as part of the questionnaire as well just to uh have a kind of an answer uh, to this particular picture which shows a penguin who has to endure i suppose listening to a, a bagpipe player in the middle of the arctic so i thought there's one of my favorite images and it's on the cover of a book of a very good colleague of mine so he did a great job choosing that one it just sort of represents to me that you know the scots are kind of everywhere even in the arctic playing um the uh, Bagpipes to this poor penguin who apparently was chained to the ice so he couldn't run away. So yeah, I I know
0: (laughs) several people who have heard the bagpipes that certainly feel that way, whether there's a real chain or not.
1: That's right, and um, there are are certainly accounts of that kind in newspapers quite frequently in relation to Highland games. For example, in the nineteenth century, that was often commented upon. The uh, well, the either melodic play or rather not so melodic play of the bagpipes. Uh, yes. Um, but anyway, the site is still open. It's ongoing. Anyone who would like to contribute can do that. It's um, sort of my diaspora story. But if people go on my blog, they can, they can find a direct link as well. Um, and anyone who wants to contribute is very welcome to. It's very straightforward, I think, to do it. Yeah, and I'd love to have more contributions.
0: I guess then to wrap things up, I know you've done a great deal of research about the Scott diaspora in New Zealand, but I know you've also spent time recently in the Far East. What, uh, what kind of research projects are you working on now?
1: That research in the Far East was uh, in many ways very similar to the work on the Scots. It's looking at how people network. So in a sense, it's again that question of clubbing together because I am still interested in the role of someone's ethnic background in this networking. Uh, But it's a more contemporary project. It's looking at expats so people now who are there temporarily, most of them anyway, working for a big company or in whatever other capacity. And it's comparing British generally, not just Scottish, although Scottish are a key part, of course, and German expats in these locations. Because it's Asia, you know, particular focus on the environment again, in terms of the challenges, maybe that environment brings with different language, particularly in China. I think it's the the biggest challenge. People do generally not speak English particularly well there, um, and so you know that brings with it a whole uh, plethora of, of problems. And maybe people stick together a little more in these places than they might do if you know if they immigrate to Australia or somewhere else. So yeah, but basically it is um, still looking at clubs that brought people together, but also the work of embassies and the work of other organizations, like uh, the British Council, for example, and the kind of work that they might be doing. Sometimes, well, by accident, in a sense, bringing people from the same background together, who can then use that maybe to network in these environments. So generally, I'm always very interested in why people might stick with their own kind, for want of a better term, or if they actually don't do that anymore, because that's also a possibility now uh, in many ways. Lots of these people, for example, I've met, were not necessarily just seeking out fellow countrymen. And I think one reason for that, again, is modern technology. Imagine if you emigrated to New Zealand in 1855 or something like that, You would have been delighted, I think, if uh, you'd known someone who'd gone before and maybe who could help you uh, resettle there. Now, you probably open Google, do a few searches, and you could even find the house you would be living in if you have a street view picture. That's not – so that's changed a lot of things. Um, So, again, I think the reasons why people would be choosing to come together with uh, fellow countrymen have changed because of that, because of the possibilities people now have to network even before they go to a new place. But again, in some places, that's different. With China, it'd be much more difficult to find out certain things. So I'm looking at these differences as well.
0: My thanks to Dr. Tanya Bultman for sharing with us her insight into the Scott diaspora, its historic migration around the world, and contributions to society. I urge you to check out her Scottish diaspora blog, where you'll find a wealth of historical information, and to contribute to her project, My Story, building a social database about the Scottish diaspora, one Scot at a time. Links, as usual, are in the show notes on our website, under the Scott. I think you'll find it fun and entertaining, and you might even find a friend there who has already shared a bit of their own story, including yours truly. And as it is still my deepest desire to immigrate into Scotland and make Scotland my home, perhaps someday I'll be a part of one of Dr. Bultman's future studies. Next time, we're talking Scots, the language, I mean, with words like drukit, Egypt, Glakit, Piliwali, and my personal favorite, Numpty. Next time, it's all about the concise Scots Dictionary. Until then, I'm Glenn Moyer, Topolave Agus Alapa Gubra.
2: Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. Learn more on our website at www. Glenelmoyer.com. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot And while you're there, check out our online shop where you can buy exclusive Under the Tartan Sky logo apparel and other items. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore Tartan Sky. That's the underscore symbol Tartan Sky. And thank you for listening.